I have rights. If you, like me, watch CSI, police camera action, or other crime dramas on TV far too much of the time, then that will be a pretty familiar phrase for you. I have rights. A suspect has just been arrested for X, Y, Z, and the first thing they instinctively say, I have rights. And in fact, whether they say it or not, the first thing the police will do, in America at least, when they take a suspect into custody, will read them their Miranda rights. You have the right to remain silent. You have the right to consult an attorney before you say anything. Do you understand these rights as we have read them to you? Our individual rights are a much cherished aspect of modern society. And in most cases, they are a good thing. Originally founded on the belief that God created all men equal, regardless of race, gender, religion, or social status. And many of us here, Malaysians amongst us, are looking forward to our right to vote in the coming upcoming general election, to have our say in who we want governing the country. But back in 1 Corinthians 8 that we were saw a couple of weeks ago, we saw there were circumstances where we as Christians should willingly surrender our rights, our personal freedoms. The issue for Corinth, it didn't concern Miranda rights or voting rights, but an equally hot topic for the Corinthians back in those days, the issue of eating food associated with pagan religions. Paul's argument was fairly straightforward. Let me just remind us. He said in 1 Corinthians 8, basically, food is from God, and even if it's broadly associated with pagan religious practices, it's still food. And as a Christian, you have the freedom to consume it. But don't insist on that freedom if it's going to cause a weaker brother or sister to stumble into sin. One whose conscience is not clear on the issue of eating such food. You promote them to eat, well then they will sin in their hearts. And so you sin against them and you sin against the body of Christ, against Christ himself. And in our chapter this morning, in chapter 9, Paul's continuing this argument of forsaking one's rights one's personal freedoms out of love for others. But the focus is very much on him. Now, rather than the Corinthians and their eating practices, he shows us in this chapter how that principle is actually at the heart of his Christian ministry to the Corinthians, forsaking his rights for the sakes of others. But he's writing defensively here as well. Let me just bring us back to the beginning of chapter 9, verse 1. Read with me. Am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Are you not my workmanship in the Lord? If to others I am not an apostle, at least I am to you. For you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. Paul begins by reminding the Corinthians he is a legitimate apostle of Christ. A messenger of the gospel commissioned by Jesus himself. And the Corinthian church, they are living proof of that. They are the fruits of his apostolic ministry. The seal that proves that Jesus really did commission him to take the gospel to them, to the Gentile church. You see, there were troublemakers in Corinth. 
other spiritual teachers who were demeaning Paul and deriding his ministry, uh, making out to the Corinthian church that he was this fake, pathetic excuse for a minister. And one of the accusations they made against Paul as they were deriding him was the fact that he didn't model their own measures of success. He didn't model their own measures of success. You see, these super spiritual gurus going around, touring around in Corinth in those days, they were distinguished from the average teachers by their fee. Much like Class A Hollywood celebrities are today, they're distinguished from the rest with their multi-million dollar movie deals. Well, the more that these super spiritual gurus could charge for their incredible oratory practices the more popular they were considered in Corinthian culture. And that reflected very poorly on Paul and his ministry. It had led the Corinthian church that he had established by the gospel to deriding him and seeing him as pathetic. So in the rest of this chapter, Paul's going to do two things. He makes it clear that he does have rights as a legitimate apostle, particularly in the era of remuneration getting paid for his work. But then, he also makes it clear why he forsook his rights as he served the Corinthians with the gospel. Let's come to our first heading. Paul declares his rights. Verse 3. This is my defense to those who would examine me. Do we not have the right to eat and drink? Do we not have the right to take along a believing wife? Or do the, uh, as, the, uh, as do the other apostles and the brothers of the Lord and Cephas. This is what Paul had to say to those who were demeaning his ministry and encouraging others in the church to do the same. As an apostle who had committed his life to the service of the gospel and bringing it to others, it was his right to be supported by those whom he served. So when he says, well, do we not have the right to eat and drink? He's, he means more than just, don't I have permission to take a snack and have a drink of water? No, he means, don't we have the right to be provided those things by you whom we serve, as he speaks to the Corinthians. And that wasn't a foreign concept to them. We can see from what Paul writes here, they were familiar with other apostles, other gospel servants, including Cephas, Peter, And not only had the basic provisions of food and water and lodging been provided for them, but their families got put up as well while they were doing their ministry. They had taken their wives along with them and they still didn't have to labour to support their families as they served the gospel. But that wasn't the treatment that Paul and Barnabas received when they took the gospel to Corinth. In verse 6, Is it only Barnabas and I who have no right to refrain from working for a living? Who serves as a soldier at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard without eating any of its fruits? Or who tends a flock without getting some of the milk? Now Paul makes it very clear that those who devote their time to serving the work of the gospel faithfully have the right to be supported by those whom they serve. They have the right to refrain from working in a secular job which would otherwise take them away from their time in ministry so they can afford to serve the gospel full time. And where that right is not being honoured, 
Paul compares it to a soldier who pays out of his own pocket for the privilege of fighting and possibly dying for another man's battles. You know, I trust, trust me, paying to shoot each other down at the arcade is one thing. I assure you, serving in the armed forces, forces is a very different story. There's a farmer who doesn't enjoy any of the produce from the crop he laboured for. A shepherd who doesn't enjoy any of the milk from the flock he nurtured. It's like the CEO of Starbucks never being allowed a discount, let alone a free coffee, from one of his continually growing number of outlets worldwide. He probably drinks much classier coffee, but that's not the point. Just in case the Corinthians start to think that Paul is buying into the philosophies of his wealthy, super-spiritual guru counterparts that are saying, basically, give me cash and I'll serve you, give me cash and I'll serve you. No, he makes it clear this right of remuneration for full-time gospel workers, it doesn't find its basis in the will of man. It's not a human argument. Look in verse 8. Do I say these things on human authority? Does not the law say the same? For it is written in the law of Moses, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. Is it for oxen that God is concerned? Does he not speak entirely for our sake? It was written for our sake, because the plowman should plow and hope in the fresh of fresh and hope of sharing in the crop. See, back in the Old Testament, God gave Israel the law by which they were to live as his people under him, having saved them from slavery in Egypt. And this law that he gave to them expressed his character, his love, his justice, his holiness, and his will for his people to be like him. It was God's law. Not a human idea. But it was meant to shape the attitudes and hearts of God's people so that they would desire to follow after him. And one of the laws they were to live by concerned how they were to treat animals who performed menial tasks in their agrarian society. As a pair of oxen were directed to tread out the grain, they weren't to be prevented from eating some of it as they did so. Principle being, a labourer deserves to benefit from his work. Paul knew that it was the principle behind this command in the law that God wanted to see take root in the hearts of his people. That's probably why back in Deuteronomy 25, where we find this random law, it's nestled between laws commanding provisions for men and women in different circumstances, not animals. God wasn't chiefly concerned for oxen, as Paul says. He wanted to ensure the labourers amongst his people benefited from their labour. And for Paul, as an apostle, for Barnabas, his fellow worker in the gospel, their labour was the gospel. So he writes in verse 11, If we have sown spiritual things among you, is it too much if we reap material things from you? If others share this rightful claim on you, do not we even more? Friends, Supporting those who serve us full-time in gospel ministry as a church is a matter of godliness. Paul reminds us down in verse 14, this command came from Jesus' own lips, alluding to what Jesus says in Matthew's gospel, verse 14, in the same way the Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. And as we, the church, together submit to Christ in this way, it enables leaders to serve us in the gospel full time. 
rather than being distracted by having a second job for a living. Now, that doesn't mean that just anyone can decide to become a full-time gospel worker and demand support from the church. Paul wasn't just anyone. Barnabas wasn't just anyone. They were recognized and commissioned by the wider church as faithful ministers of the gospel. And we've got other scriptures to help us understand the qualifications for pastors and teachers of the word and advice on how these people should be recognized and encouraged into full-time ministry. But for those who have been recognized as full-time workers for the gospel, the church whom they serve are to support them. And personally, I am really encouraged by the willingness I see at SMAC for us to be doing just this. Now, a few months ago, I was meeting with uh, one of our regular members over lunch, and he asked me up front how he and his family could be actively involved in supporting ministers at SMAC and St. Mary's in general. That was so encouraging that he took the first step to find out how he could become actively involved as a partner in the gospel in that way. Because it showed he understood what it meant to be a partner in the gospel here at SMAC with us. Now, this kind of application can sometimes lead to a sudden rise in the collection for ministry today, which could be motivated by guilty consciences and reluctant but pressured decisions to give what we happen to have on us right now. That is not the kind of giving we want to promote for the gospel here at SMAC. We are to give cheerfully out of our love for God and a genuine concern for his ministry of his church, the promotion of the gospel. So I want us all to please think and pray through this issue carefully and support your full-time gospel workers materially only to the extent that you are able to do so with a cheerful and thankful spirit in worship of God. Now, Paul's ultimate concern was certainly not the money that he raised for his ministry. It was actually more of a side issue for him. It was important for him to get by as he ministered, but only as a means to an end. So where appropriate, he was willing to forsake his right to be supported by the church he was serving if by doing so it served his ultimate concern, his real goal, his real passion. That's our second heading. Paul forsakes his rights. Come with me to halfway through verse 12. Nevertheless, We have not made use of this right, but we endure anything rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. And again, a bit further in verse 15, further down. But I have made no use of any of these rights, nor am I writing these things to secure any such provision. For I would rather die than have anyone deprive me of my ground for boasting. Paul gives us two reasons why he denied his support that he was due from the Corinthians he was serving. First one, back in verse 12, Paul refused to allow any obstacle that would otherwise hinder the work of his ministry, getting the gospel to the Corinthians. And he knew that if he charged them for the ministry that he was doing amongst them, it would have somehow hindered the gospel from doing its work in them. 
It could be that they would have just lumped him in with all of those other super spiritual gurus, charging their huge fees for their pearls of wisdom. So they wouldn't take much notice of Paul and his gospel, or as just another teacher charging another big fee with another story. But by supporting his own ministry, by willingly making tents part-time to raise funds, Paul set himself apart from the rest of the teachers. He was unique because his message was unique. His gospel was one of grace, undeserved love that God has shown us in Jesus, who died for our sins while we were still his enemies. So what better a way for Paul to commend this good news than to offer it at his own expense? So Paul would gladly labour to support himself if it served to promote the gospel rather than hinder it. But the second reason he gives for doing this is one of self-interest. Paul denied his right to support because he also saw a further benefit for himself. He doesn't want the Corinthians to think that by writing these things, he's trying to guilt them into giving him lots of provisions. Now, if they did that, he says in, in verse 16 that he would be deprived of this further ground for boasting. Look in verse 16. For if I preach the gospel, that gives me no ground for boasting, for necessity is laid upon me. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. And that's what Paul had been commissioned to do by Jesus himself, preach the gospel. For him, it was bound up with his identity as an apostle and even as a Christian for Paul. Now, of course, we as a church, we have the duty to make Christ known making the most of every opportunity we have to share the good news of Christ. But I think here, Paul is speaking into his own unique situation when he speaks of this boasting. None of us here have been called and commissioned to preach the gospel and establish God's Gentile church in the way that Paul, as Christ's apostle, was called to do. If Paul refused to preach the gospel and so fulfill his apostolic ministry, he would be deliberately rejecting the command given to him in person by Jesus Christ. It would be tantamount to rejecting Christ as his Lord and so rejecting his salvation. Because those who persistently reject Christ as Lord show by their fruits, by their continual disobedience and their lack of repentance, that they were never his in the first place. For us, yes, we are to share the gospel, but we're not set aside to preach it in the specific way that Paul was. See what he says in verse 17. For if I do this of my own will, I have a reward, but if not my own will, I am entrusted with a stewardship. Christ had entrusted the stewardship of his gospel for the Gentile church to Paul, chiefly. Preaching and church planting wasn't a choice for him. It was a matter of obedience. So how could Paul, in his unique situation, boast in his ministry, given what Jesus had commanded him to do? Given the fact he had been commanded by Jesus to establish the church. What then is my reward? Have a look in verse 18. What then is my reward? That in my preaching I may present the gospel free of charge, so as not to make full use of my right in the gospel. How how could Paul boast? 
by denying what he was due as he conducted his ministry. To present the gospel free of charge, no expense to those whom he was serving, so that he might go beyond what he had been commanded. And show that even though it was Christ's will given to him that compelled him to serve and minister the gospel, his heart and his will was 100% behind gospel ministry as well. He didn't just do what was necessary, preach the gospel and get supported for it. No, in his love for Christ and his love for those for whom Christ died, he went further by denying his right for payment. Didn't do that every time. We were to read Philippians today, we'd see he encouraged uh, that church to support him faithfully in his gospel ministry with them, with material things. But where necessary, he denied himself that right, that the gospel might prevail. My prayer is for us at SMAC that we would share Paul's single-minded passion for the gospel no matter what it might cost us in our situation in KL. One way in which we'll express this godly passion, this priority, this concern for the gospel to be going out in KL will be in the sensitivity we show to those that we are seeking to reach for it. The sensitivity we show in those we're seeking to reach for it. You see how Paul continues in verse 19. For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant of all, that I might win more of them. Paul used his freedom in Christ to serve others more effectively. He gives us this behind-the-scenes look into the way he conducts himself and his ministry to very different kinds of people. Have a look in verse 20. To the Jews I became as a Jew in order to win the Jews. To those under the law, I became as one under the law, though not myself, though not being myself under the law, that I might win those under the law. When Paul was teaching in the Jewish synagogue, he was sensitive to the Jews. He didn't order in a pork kebab or wear pagan clothing or rail on about his freedoms in Christ while ministering to them. He knew he had those freedoms, He could eat a pork kebab if he wanted to. He was no longer under the law of Moses, as he says. He knew his right standing before God, depended on faith in Jesus, and that alone, not on legalistically trying to keep the law to perfection. But where it helped him to minister to his fellow Jews, he would observe some stipulations from their law. He'd use his freedom in Christ to do that, to endear himself and the gospel to them. But, Paul then goes down the road from the synagogue, hangs out with the Gentiles, the non-Jews. Verse 21. To those outside the law, I became as one outside the law. Verse 22. To the weak, I became weak that I might win the weak. Paul would just gladly shirk the regulations of the law when he left his Jewish friends to be with his Gentile friends. He would wear what they wore. He would eat what they ate. To put no obstacle in the way of him sharing the gospel with them. To the weak, as we saw back in chapter 8, Paul would use his freedom to act as they did. They couldn't stomach food broadly associated with pagan practices, then Paul certainly wouldn't either. Paul was, as it were, a chameleon for Christ. 
know what a chameleon is? It's that little jungle animal that has this incredible ability to blend in with its surroundings. Okay? Paul was a chameleon for Christ. He changed his appearance and his habits depending on who he was ministering to. Now, does this mean that for us here in KL to share Paul's passion in the gospel, we should all become like our Muslim friends and pray with them to Allah in the mosque on a Friday as we seek to win them for the gospel? Does it mean that we should all become like our Hindu friends and join in with them when they go for Taipusam as we seek to win them for the gospel? Is that what Paul is saying here? You know, when he says in verse 21, I've become all things to all people that by all means I might win some. Friends, I'll say it again. Paul was a chameleon for Christ. Paul was a chameleon for Christ. He was flexible in every way he possibly could be as long as it did not compromise the gospel. The message that Jesus is the Christ. God's Son, our Saviour and Lord, our King. Paul was very, very careful not to lose his identity under Christ as his king when he became a Jew to the Jews and a Gentile to the Gentiles in his ministry. That's why he included that little caveat we skipped over in verse 21. See in the parentheses, in the brackets back there? To those outside the law, uh, I became as one outside the law, brackets, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ. Under the law of Christ. Paul was promoting the gospel by which he had been saved. The message that Jesus is Lord. The one to whom we must all depend on to be forgiven our sin. We must all submit to, to enjoy life with God again. And that included Paul. So he was very careful to submit to Jesus as Lord in his gospel efforts. In fact, he still applied principles from the Mosaic law to himself and the church as well. We saw him do that earlier. You know, in that law concerning how oxen are to eat when they're treading out the grain, well, he actually makes an application from that for the church living under Christ. Even though Paul knew his salvation didn't depend on keeping that law perfectly, he also knew that God's law for us in the Old Testament, is an expression of his character, his will, his holiness, his moral will for his people. Now, the parts that have been clearly fulfilled in Jesus, like the offering of sacrifices for our sins, well, Jesus has done that. We certainly don't honour God by participating in that kind of thing. We trust in Christ. But where appropriate... We can use the principles of God's law in the Old Testament as well as the commands of Christ in the New to guide our submission to him. Paul did that. He took God's commands to him in Christ seriously in his ministry. He didn't promote legalistic law-keeping when he was with his Jewish friends and then go down and get all lawless and legless with his Gentile friends. In the same way, we can't commend the gospel to anyone if we deny it in the way we behave at the same time. It's incoherent. Can't commend Christ to a Muslim by joining them in their worship of Allah. Can't commend Christ to a Hindu by joining them in suffering for their sins at Taipusun. 
I can't commend Christ to a Buddhist by praying with them to the spirits of their dead and worshipping those ancestors. All those practices directly deny the fact that Christ is Lord. Paul was clear on where he could and where he could not bend in his witness to Jesus, to those whom he met. And friends, we need to be in KL of all places really clear on that as well. We need to be growing in our understanding as we spend time in the Word, serious time, to learn what we can and cannot compromise on in our witness to Christ. And in those areas where we can adapt, where we can bend, where we can flex, where we can change our habits, our behaviours, for the sake of the Gospel, do that. Let's be doing that. I wonder where we might be able to flex a bit more for the sake of our witness as Christians. Just one, one area to consider. Maybe we need to be more flexible with those who we let into our social circles during the week. How much time do we spend with non-Christians outside of work? We have the freedom to spend our social time with whomever we want. And it's important that we meet together regularly as Christians to encourage one another in the gospel. But if that's all we're doing in our social time, outside of work, if we're just going from Tuesday night training to growth group, to spending time with our Christian family, to meeting up with each other and going bowling to the cinema or something like that, and the only time we have for non-Christians is when we're trying to meet deadlines at work or on a ridiculously hectic business trip, it's going to be kind of hard to build relationships with them in which we can commend the gospel. It's going to be really hard to adapt our behavior and habits to reach them more effectively if we're not making any, any efforts to get to know them. Paul loved Christ and he loved those for whom Christ died. And so he went beyond what was commanded because he realized how precious and important The gospel was for sinners like us. I had a friend back in the UK, John, uh, and when I knew him, he was serving as an apprentice at a church in Oxford. And and he realised soon after he started his apprenticeship that his days were filling up with Christian activities. He had very, very little time for anyone but the church. But one day a non-Christian whom he met at one of the services, invited him to the local indoor rock climbing club. It's very strange, but in the UK we don't have big rocks outside, so we make indoor rock climbing centres. Now, John, he wasn't a particularly sporty guy. He didn't have really much interest in rock climbing whatsoever. In fact, he was scared of heights. And he had plenty of church work to be getting on with. But he loved Christ, and he loved those for whom Christ died. So he decided to adapt his timetable and his hobby preferences. He decided to spend one night less with his Christian friends to go rock climbing with this non-Christian guy. And through that opportunity, John was able to share the gospel with most of the members of that rock climbing club and a few of them as a result came to church. Let's be thinking, just in this coming week, on where we can bend for the sake of the gospel with the freedoms that we enjoy. Let's wrap up. Paul had rights as a gospel worker and he had the right to enforce 
those rights. But the central principle that we see running through 1 Corinthians 8 to 10 was at the very heart of his ministry. We are to use our freedom in Christ to love and serve him and those for whom he died. And where that means setting aside our rights and curtailing our personal freedoms for the sake of the gospel, let's do exactly that. Because friends, above all, we are living for Christ. We are his people. The one who, even though he was God, humbled himself, set aside every right he had to come and live and suffer and die in our place under the judgment that we deserve for our sin so that we, as his church, might be truly free and have eternal life in his name. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for the incredible freedom that we now have in Christ. Thank you that we are free from the dominion of sin, that we no longer have to fear death because Christ has died and Christ has risen and our salvation is bound up with him. And we pray that you would help us to be mindful of how we can be being best faithful to the commission he has granted to us to be servants of the good news. Christ died and raised for sinners. Help us to know where we can bend and where we can't in the coming week and help us to be faithful as servants of your gospel. For your glory and for Jesus' sake. Amen.